You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. We're going to focus on locally advanced and metastatic melanoma now. And I really applaud the SDPA for adding this topic into your curriculum. Because let's face it, you guys are like me. I don't really do this stuff, I'll be honest with you. I, and, and to put together this talk, I really had to study and pull a lot of stuff together to, uh, to, to present it in a way that's going to be useful to you. And I don't suspect that anybody in this room does this stuff either. However, I think it's incredibly important, and that's why I applaud the SDPA for including this into your curriculum, because you need to know this stuff. Now, not in the detail of a medical oncologist, hematologist oncologist, or a surgical oncologist, because they're the ones that need to know this in detail. And what I also applaud the SDPA for doing is asking somebody like me, a dermatologist, to present this information. You know, somebody who has an interest in melanoma, but I'm not a or medical oncologist, hematologist. I already went through all that stuff. Um, I'm not that guy that gives the ipilimumab and the vemurafenib and all these things that are just kind of flying over your head. So it's after lunch, and it would be very easy for you to tune me out and be like, yeah, he just said I don't ever have to do this stuff. That's for the Hemonc guys, so time to check out. Don't do that. And the reason for that, most importantly, is because you do this stuff because these are your patients. They're your patients. You're the one that makes the original diagnosis, and then they go on to have advanced and metastatic melanoma. And then don't you want to know what happens to them? Because they're going to come back to you. So for like me, I'm fortunate to live very close to Boston. I'm less than an hour away. So there's a lot of choices for me to refer to medical oncologists, hemonc docs, surgical oncologists, and I have my go-to people. I imagine you all probably have your go-to people as well in the major medical centers that are within proximity to your, your location. I'm, I'm partial to the MGH, but there's, you know, there, there are other great institutions there in Boston. So, relevant disclosure. I mentioned this in the previous talk. That's Portsmouth again, by the way. Portsmouth is about, uh, if you're lucky, 45 minutes away from Boston. If you're unlucky, it's much, much further than that. But uh, I am on the advisory board, and I speak for Castle Biosciences, the company that makes the genomic expression profile test. So I'm just curious, who, who uses that here? so people know about this. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on it because I don't want to make it a commercial for that by any stretch of the imagination. 99% of what I'm going to say has nothing to do with that, so um, I, I do mention it just in, in the interest of uh, giving full disclosure to everybody. There are two or three slides toward the end where I am going to talk about the genomic expression profile test uh, because I do personally believe that it has a place in the management of advanced and, and uh, metastatic melanoma. This is a moving target. Uh, three days ago, this came out in my AAD newsletter, and you see me show a bunch of these. I showed them in the thing before. I like to keep it relevant and up to date, and I know you can't see this too well, I apologize. But uh, at the bottom right corner, it says, targeted therapies have changed treatment of metastatic melanoma, experts say. Unless you're living under a rock or not paying attention to anything, that is one of the understatements of the year in dermatology because this is a moving target. It's literally changing what feels like daily. And 
the point I was making a bit ago of having uh, or applauding the SDPA for inviting somebody like me to speak to you about this is I'm going to try to present it in a way that's useful to you and useful to your patients so that it won't just be a black box to you when you have a patient with metastatic melanoma. Like, okay, I'm going to send them to Boston and we'll see what happens. No, I want you to know what they're going to get, what kind of medication they're going to get, and that you can at least be conversant of the, the few that are there. Like I said, there are a lot of names and there, a lot of them sound alike, but there's actually some rhyme and reason to the way that these medications were named. And, and when, when you hear it and we put it all together, together, we'll all have a better idea of what happens to our patients. So, in the interest of keeping things in line with how we, we present here, what is the median survival of metastatic melanoma? Is it less than a year, less than five years, five to 10 years, or greater than 10 years? And I'll also tell you that this might be a little bit of a moving target as well. Most people said less than five years. 65% of people said less than five years. This is metastatic melanoma in 2017, 2018. It's changing. What's the five-year survival rate of metastatic melanoma? That's not the exact same question of what I just asked. So is it less than 1%? less than 5%, 5 to 10%, or 15 to 20%. Kind of all over the place a little bit here. Well, good, so again, so let's think about this. The five-year survival rate of metastatic melanoma. Keep that in mind. We're talking about very serious stuff because there wasn't an answer there for like greater than 50%. I mean, the, the highest it could be was 15 to 20%. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Another question, this one has to do with a drug. A V600E mutation could successfully be treated with ipilimumab. You gotta know mechanism of action now. Vemurafenib, nivolumab, or TVEC. TVEC is a mouthful. Wait till we get to that slide. Oh, Jesus. And now you'll know why we call it TVEC. It's like this long. Well, we're talking about a B600E mutation. I gave you a little bit of a hint a second ago, too. Who knows the answer to this one? Huh. Well, I'm glad we're having this talk. Hopefully, we'll all be on the same sheet of music. And again, you can tune me out and... You know, you're just going to send your patients on to the tertiary care medical center to get bemurafenib or nivolumab or one of these things. But I think as a dermatological provider, we should all have a pretty good idea of what these things are. So again, I'm going to try and present it in a way that's accessible. This is what we're going to cover today. Diagnosis. I think we got that one down cold. And like I said a little bit ago, the talk that I gave you before lunch, that stuff... I think all of us probably walked out of here feeling kind of good about yourself because you're like, yeah, I know that stuff. That was more of a review. That was kind of Jarrell just confirming what you already know. Everybody did very well on all the test questions. So that's, that's diagnosis, and that's management of what I call manageable melanoma. So we can breeze through that quickly. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the role of the sentinel lymph node and, and what role it plays in advanced and, and metastatic melanoma. And then... We're going to talk about metastatic melanoma. Metastatic melanoma, essentially, and this is a good half of the talk, it's all that ipilimumab, nivolumab. Again, I don't want it. 
I, I want to put that in a way that you can compartmentalize it and say, this is for this, and this is for that, and this is how the Hemonc dock came to that. And the reason why you don't want a Hemonc dock giving you this talk, and I love them, God bless them, but man, you probably feel, I don't know if you've heard this talk given by a Hemonc dock, but you probably think you're in like in a probability and statistics class because it's just Kaplan-Meier, Kaplan-Meier, probability statistics, probability of this. This one is 0.2% better than this one. And you're, by the end of the day, you're just kind of blown away and it sort of doesn't matter. I, I want to give you metastatic melanoma in a way that, that you can say, oh yeah, okay, I, I get that. And then most importantly, I think the final upshot of this talk is what happens to your patient when you refer them? It, I don't want it to be a black box for you. So we talked about this a little bit in the last talk. The patients to keep you up at night. Should I biopsy this one? Should I biopsy that one? That's, if this is a, a, a thin melanoma and one that you can handle on your own, then beautiful, you do it. This guy, who incidentally is, well, I'm not gonna tell you who he is. Um, he's my dentist, big deal. That's not a HIPAA violation, is it? You don't know who my dentist is, do you? Uh, came because of athlete's feet. And I'm um, like, well, that's cool. We can take care of that, no problem. But what about this thing? How long has that been cooking on your leg? And I like to take pictures through dermoscopy. And uh, this is an obvious melanoma. It turned out to be 0.67 millimeters, no mitosis, no ulceration. Of course, it was a couple of years ago, so that was a solid PT1A. I call that manageable melanoma. Jarrell can do a wide local excision by himself, take care of that, and so far so good, things are still going well. Wide local excision with one centimeter margins. All right, so we've already checked off a couple of things on our agenda. It's gonna get nastier here. This is the part we pay attention. You have your patient, you see this in their mouth, and you try not to go, Look at it calmly. Or if you see this on someone's foot, you don't go, ah, oh, Jesus. Or this. This is, this is serious stuff. This is probably beyond all of the management. Well, at least of here. There are a lot of folks here that do like higher level surgery, Mohs surgery, Mohs surgery, derm stuff. You could probably handle the top two. But I'm sending all of these to Hemonc or uh, surgical oncology. Obviously, I don't have the luxury of seeing a person walk in with this, and they wouldn't come to me because they'd be in the wrong office, but this is what metastatic melanoma looks like. And this is what we were talking about a little bit ago with that horrific five-year survival and median survival for even one year. And that's this black box. So for when patients have that, then they end up here, out of our hands. And then what? Well, let's talk about the surgical oncologists. You go to a surgeon, you get surgery. Not all surgeons, not all dermatologists are on board with the lymph node discussion. It's one of the most controversial things in all of dermatology, right? To lymph node or not to lymph node? When to do it? Thick ones, little ones? What kind of patient? Do you do it on a 96-year-old? Do you always prefer to do it on youngsters with, with a better prognosis? What's the data on that? So we have these two big publications that came from the New England Journal of Medicine, the one first in 2006. It's called MSLT1, 
and then it was the follow-up data was published in 2014 called MSLT2. Now let me summarize that for you. In general, number one, the, the first big takeaway, and this is the thing that people just very quickly say, well, there's no survival difference if you take all comers and who have an intermediate depth melanoma. So intermediate depth for them in that study was defined as 1.2 millimeters to 3.5 millimeters. They had 1,347 patients. This is kind of like all comers. That's a big group, multi-center study, published in New England Journal. This is what we go on. It's 1,347 patients, intermediate thickness melanomas, 1.2 millimeters to 3.5 millimeters. There was an observation arm. This is how we randomized them, 40% observation. 60% got a lymph node. What happened? Does anybody know what happens? Well, what was the final upshot of that? I gave you all the important numbers. 60% got a biopsy. This is 1.2 to 3.5 millimeter melanomas. 40% got, let's just see what happens. Observation, no lymph node. There's no survival benefit, one way or the other. So some people kind of hang their head on that and say, well, you know, well, like maybe we shouldn't do a send a lymph node because there's no survival benefit. I don't buy that. I think that that's looking too superficially at the data. If you substratify the patients that went on to have positive lymph nodes, now remember, you're going to come across these lymph nodes in different ways. You have the immediate biopsy arm. So 60% of those 1,347 patients, 60% went into the do a biopsy. And of those, 122 were found to have a positive lymph node right then and there. They underwent a completion lymphadenectomy. Okay, so we got that group. And then we have the group that was in the observation arm. And remember I said, they came to have positive lymph nodes. Hi, yay, yay in a sad and unfortunate kind of way because we didn't do anything, we observed, and they were either found by, you know, a couple years down the road, oh, geez, we've got some, got some positive lymphadenopathy, or maybe we should explore that. Those guys did poorly, much more poorly compared to the ones that had the, imme the immediate completion, completion lymphadenectomy, that was those 122 patients, versus the 78 that kind of watched and waited. So in my opinion, in the appropriate patient, a sentinel lymph node is definitely indicated. That data was corroborated in 2014, as I said. So, was it eight years later, MSLT2 was published, and it basically showed again, and some of the, the naysayers will hang their hat on it and say, still no survival benefit. But again, the ones that underwent an early completion lymphadenectomy with a known lymph node positive uh, fared better. Now there's another reason, in my opinion, to do a lymph node. So much of the stuff that I'm about to talk to you about for the next few minutes, this mishmash alphabet soup of genes and drugs and targets, you don't even have a chance of participating in that if you don't have a lymph node or if you don't have metastatic melanoma already but you may not have ever discovered that if you didn't do the lymph node. So for me, I think that kind of answers the question of to lymph node or not to lymph node. And I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about that since I don't think anybody here does a lymph node. I certainly don't. What happens when your patient goes to the surgical oncologist?
to get the lymph node. So the appropriate patient is the one that's going to get some sort of benefit that exceeds the risk. Now, the complication rate of having a sentinel lymph node biopsy is less than 10% in experienced hands. You can have bleeding, you could have infection, seroma, uh, rarely a DVT or, or lymphedema. And oh, by the way, a sentinel lymph node biopsy is expensive, about 18 to 20 grand. That's a lot of money. Uh, greater than 5% risk of a sentinel lymph node positivity. Now, again, this is considered beneficial because you're going to do something with that information. So by AJCC uh, standards that we just spoke, in, spoke about in the last talk, a PT1B melanoma is a candidate for a sentinel lymph node biopsy, and that would include any depth with ulceration. Personally, I would probably have it at about the 0.3 millimeters with ulceration. So a really thin one with ulceration, we'll kind of play it by ear. And I know this sounds like a lot of hand-waving and wishy-washiness, and I don't mean it to be, but these are the kinds of discussions that go into taking care of a patient with, with these problems. And then this magical cutoff that we talked about in the last lecture as well, 0.8 millimeters without ulceration. For me, I do it. In the appropriate patient, healthy, has an otherwise good prognosis and life expectancy, I send them to my go-to surgical oncologist and, and, and let them help discuss with the patient the benefits of doing a sentinel lymph node or not. So what, what is a sentinel? Some folks already know this inside out. Um, I had to actually think about this a lot. And so it's, it's the node upon which the lymph, the, the afferent vessel of, of the lymph drains to uh, directly and it predicts whether there's other lymph node basin involvement. So that's your sentinel there, looking out for you and protecting you. But what is some other definitions of, of sentinel lymph node? It could be the first node that's visualized, uh, the, the hottest nodes, or the nodes containing more than 10% of, uh, of the activity that's picked up by the lymphocentigraphy, uh, or the palpable node. Now, from a practical standpoint, how does this happen? There's something called a tracer, that it gets injected. You have your, your primary tumor site. Let's say it's on the belly, and I'll show you a picture in a bit. Anywhere from a millimeter to 10 millimeters away from the scar or the actual tumor margin, you get two wheels of injection of the tracer proximal to the where the central lymph node is going to be, or if it's on the... Uh, head and neck or on the trunk, you kind of surround it and do four wheels or injections. And so let's uh, take this example here. This is one that's in the, the middle of the thorax. The injection site is right here around the tumor, and you can see that's, that's pretty hot. And so this is a sentinel lymph node. And so this is the one that the surgical oncologist is going to dissect out and look under the microscope and see if there is melanoma there. That's a whole discussion in and of itself uh, from a dermatopathological standpoint that, that we could get into, and there's, that's rife with controversy as well. But for our purposes, this is what happens when a patient gets a sentinel lymph node biopsy. Now, this is a, the scan of the pelvis. Notice how there's nothing hot here, so we don't have to go digging around their pelvis looking for nodes. We found the one up here in their axillary region, and it kind of looks like this. So you have this patient here with a, uh, the primary melanoma right there, and you have the afferents that drain into these nodes, and the afferents that drain into these nodes, 
as I said, you inject the tracer all around like this. This is the injection site, and voila, the, uh, the dye gets taken up here, and then this is the one that, that gets dissected out. Chop, 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 give it to the pathologist. They look at it under the microscope. You either have positive uh, lymph node activity or you don't. And then so much more happens after that, which we're going to focus on in a bit here. So this is more of what it looks like in, in actual practice. There's a diagram of the actual pulling of the hot lymph node out. So different things can go wrong. This is not a simple, a simple task, doing a, a sentinel lymph node biopsy. There are variables that matter, like the type and the dose of the tracer, the size of the particles, how much volume is injected, the timing of the imaging. You have to do it kind of just right. You can't let it sit there for a long time or it'll fade off. The gamma probes are very, uh, whether you use local or, or general anesthesia is important. Other things that can go wrong, a sentinel lymph node can be missed. So you end up pulling out a node and you call it negative, but you didn't actually get the right lymph node. That's a problem. So the, the true sentinel lymph node may not actually be radioactive or have the, the, uh, the, the blue dye in it. Perhaps there's so much tumor that it obstructs the lymph flow. Uh, these, are, these are problems that can happen. Uh, not every uh, radioactive or, or blue node is a sentinel lymph node. And this kind of goes along with that. The first node visualized may not be the only sentinel lymph node. There may be others. So these are things that when the surgical oncologist is going through this procedure, has to be constantly reevaluating. Okay, are we getting the right one here? Massive decisions are riding on this patient's life and future. And another uh, important point, the nearest node is not always the one that drains that tumor. And somebody asked this question before uh, in the last talk, if you do an excisional biopsy, is it going to alter the lymph flow? I think if you do undermining around it. So I would discourage you from doing that. Let's say you have a big fat melanoma and you want to do a, a, a good excisional biopsy with one millimeter margins. Even if it's big and you need to pull it back together, they're going to get a big surgery around that whole thing anyway. So don't worry about prettiness and don't worry about putting it together nicely, which means don't undermine. Just pull it together and put some stitches and wait for it to happen. Other things that can go wrong. This, you, this procedure itself is, can be technically challenging, particularly in the head and neck. Very false, very high false negative rate. Uh, using the gamma probe requires intense training. You don't just kind of come out of surgical residency and start doing these things. You have to do a lot of training to get good at it. And an interesting point here is the false negative rate drops from about 10% in the first 25 cases uh, to 5% in cases following that. So you want to have a, an experienced surgical oncologist taking care of these things. So now we're moving on a little bit to metastatic melanoma. This is a bad problem, right? This is what we talked about a bit ago, horrific uh, median survival rate, one year, five year, and things that we have available to us to help these patients. So historically, think about our lifetimes in the last 10 years, Patients did horrendously, and they still don't do great, but we've made some progress. So the median survival is about six to nine months uh, for patients with metastatic melanoma. The five-year survival, less than 
That's kind of where we are today in 2017, 2018. Now, I mentioned this a little bit in the first talk as well, and it's going to be highlighted pretty dramatically in this talk, is that melanoma comes in many different flavors. The biological behavior of a particular melanoma is not predicated on what Jarrell, the dermatopathologist, tells you. Okay, it's a Breslow depth 0.8 millimeters with ulceration. Okay, that's all fine and good. That's important. But I didn't tell you anything about the genetic signature of that particular melanoma. So I don't know what drugs it's going to respond to. Um, and I, I don't know how they're going to do. I can only give you kind of a population based on what we know from histopathological standpoint. When they get to metastatic melanoma, you're talking about a very aggressive uh, melanocyte, a very aggressive cell that wants to go all around the body. Now here we are in a very exciting time and it's only gonna get more exciting and, and even more complicated to try and keep everything straight. Prior to 2011, that was only seven years ago, Damn, blink of an eye, there was nothing that the FDA had that showed to prolong survival. You had gamma interferon that kind of helped a little, but it wasn't uh, statistically significant in terms of uh, improving survival. And now, here we are, we have all these things, so let's talk about the pace of progress. Here's where, and perk up the ears a little bit, and, and think about and listen to the things that we have available to us. The first thing that came out, there were two of them in 2011. Ipilimumab in 2011, and uh, bemurafenib. Very different drugs, both came out in 2011 based on publications that came out in the Lancet and the New England Journal the year prior, 2010. So the FDA said, in 2011, you can start giving these to the appropriate patients. We'll talk about who those people were. And then there are two in 2013, brafenib. The is kind of like bemurafenib, and you'll see in a second why. These, weren't, these names weren't just made up by accident, as much as they sound like they are. In a second, you're gonna hear why, why they were named that. And then you have Tremetinib was also a 2013 drug, which is a MEK inhibitor. Pembrolizumab, the checkpoint inhibitors. This is program uh, cell death one gene inhibitor. And then one in 2015, nivolumab. And then we have this TVEC. Told you that thing's a mouthful. Look at that. Talamogene, laherpaparavic. I should serve a pat on the back for being able to say that. You don't know how many times I practiced that. All right, so I'm just going to call it TVEC. That's what we have. Haven't seen much in the last three years, but uh, so many different things have been done with these drugs. Okay, should we do Ipi with nivolumab? Should we do Pembro with bemurafenib? And the, the various targets. But these are what we have. This is a manageable number of things. I think anybody in this room can kind of put those all into perspective. And, and I'll, I'll help you to do that even easier. There's a lot of stuff in clinical trials right now, so expect more to come. It's going to get even more complicated. But right now, You'll see, it's, it's manageable. And I think you're gonna thank me that I'm giving you this talk and not a hemonc doc because it will blow your mind the way they talk about these things. All right, so what do we have? FDA approved medications for advanced melanoma. The targeted kinase inhibitors, like the BRAF inhibitors, there's dose, bimurafenib and dibrafenib. We talked about you know, 2011 and 2013 for these two guys. That's it, BRAF inhibitors. Notice how they have the word RAF, not the word, but the little subpart that says RAF. And notice how they end in NIB. They're inhibitors, so RAF inhibitors. Even if you didn't know anything about these drugs, but somebody showed it to you in your face and said, what do you think this does? 
Oh, it's a RAF inhibitor. You could figure that out. And then this one, MEK inhibitors. So these are along the same pathway. And I'm going to show you those beautiful things that you learned back in PA school when you had to look at the molecules and the uh, biochemistry and the pathways of cell regulation, uh, where these fit in and what molecules that they target. And then you have the immunotherapy agents. So, okay, good. We, we said there were eight, right? Well, there's four down. Two inhibitors, or four inhibitors that are targeted kinase inhibitors. And now we have the immunotherapy agents. The first one, also 2011. Remember, ipilimumab, one of the first guys on the scene. And then the PD-1 inhibitors, nivolumab and pembrolizumab, the program cell death 1 inhibitors. These have a very cool mechanism of action, and we'll talk about those in detail in a second. And then TVEC, I'm not doing that again. But this one is a, is a herpes virus modified virus where they knocked out two genes. I'm going to go into detail, but just to give you a kind of a, a, a short intro of what it is, knocked out two genes and put a promoter that it goes in and target, it kills the melanoma. All of these medicines, drugs, uh, molecules really, uh, are only appropriate in the type of melanoma that they're, they're targeted to, to, uh, to, to work on. So you can't just randomly throw them at any metastatic melanoma, although you might feel like sometimes the, the hemonc docs are doing that and sometimes even getting results, but they're actually put together by design uh, to treat specific melanomas. So let's start with bemurafenib. So the first RAF inhibitor, 2011, it's a selective BRAF kinase inhibitor at the V600E uh, level of, of, the, of the codon. So what happens when a patient has, and I'll, I'll go into more detail, of this particular melanoma with a V600E mutation, that means at the 600 codon, a valine becomes a glutamic acid. That's an E, so it just gets flipped. Lose valine, put in E, that's a mutation. And look how smartly this drug was named. V600E, VE, mutation, RAF inhibitor. Cool. Um, so this was approved for treatment of unresectable or metastatic melanoma with a BRAF V600E mutation in August of 11. This is kind of an interesting case here. This was published in the New England Journal in 14. This poor young gentleman had metastatic melanoma, and he was doing as well as somebody with metastatic melanoma could be doing, but then developed these red lesions that kind of look sort of like shingles in a way, right? This is a zosteriform distribution. But if you biopsied one of these things, it's melanoma. This guy's got metastatic melanoma and it's a zosteriform distribution. But if you also biopsy one of these and study it, you see that it has a B600E mutation. This guy got bemurafenib and look what happened. It's like magic. This would have been a death sentence for him within months had he not gotten bemurafenib. So really, really exciting things going on in the hemonc world. So what the, what's a BRAF mutation? More than half, about 50 to 60% of, of all melanomas harbor this mutation at the codon 600, like I mentioned. A valine goes to a glutamic acid. This is the most common mutation, but there can also be valine to arginine, valine to lysine, valine to aspartic acid. Get to those in a second. Uh, so like I said, the second most common mutation is the B600K. I'd be going to, to lysine. What happens, and, I, and I'm going to show you the, 
in a, in a cartoon form. That mutation, if you have a mutation in BRAF there, you have constitutive activation of the MAP kinase pathway, and then you get dysregulated uh, tumor growth. So that's melanoma on overdrive because this pathway is on fire because of that BRAF mutation. Demurafenib targets that particular molecule as well as dibrafenib, and this is uh, kind of what it looks like here. So you love this stuff. It's biochemistry at its finest here. You remember this? Nightmares from biochem class. All right, so growth factors tell cells to turn over, survive, stay alive, proliferate. Uh, this is the, the MAP kinase pathway. RAS goes to BRAF. This is, has a mutation in it, so it means it's constitutively activated, and cells go crazy, melanoma. Insert bimurafenib here, or dibrafenib, and in some cases, you do well. Weird things happen, though, when you do that. So, as I said, these were the original publications that showed that there was... Um, Improvement in patients' lives that have metastatic melanoma with a B600E mutation if given bemirafenib. But it doesn't come without a price. So 80% of patients with the BRAF B600E mutation are going to have at least a partial response. That's encouraging, except that the majority of the patients are going to experience a relapse other mutations are going to develop within the melanomas in response to that therapy. And the median time to progression is about six to seven months. So that's an improvement because I told you that melanoma progresses if it's metastatic in one, two, three months maybe. And there are, as of yet, still few long-term responders. So it's no silver bullet by any stretch, uh, but it's helping some people. How do you get a BRAF? How do you even determine if someone has a BRAF mutation to begin with? All right, so you cut out your melanoma, and you send it to the lab, and Dr. Pipcorn, somebody told me they, their dermatopathologist is, yeah, he tells you it's melanoma. You're good. And then the patient progresses along, and lo and behold, unfortunately, they have metastatic melanoma. Oh, how are we going to treat it now? So you can go back to Dr. Peepcorn and have him take the original melanoma in the paraffin-embedded tissue, and they do PCR on it and determine if it has a B600E mutation. PCR is very sensitive for figuring that out. If they have a B600E mutation and they have metastatic melanoma, let's try bimurafenib. Of course, again, this isn't our decision. This is what the hemonc docs are doing. And I mentioned you can also detect other mutations like the B600D, B600K, and B600R. And even though bemurafenib is not specifically, specifically useful in those, I guarantee you the, the, the hemonc doc is going to try it. And that's what I meant by we're just kind of trying everything on these patients right now to see if we can prolong their lives. And it gets even more crazy. Now this is, this is kind of the alphabet soup. And I apologize. I said I wanted to keep it in a way that's accessible, in a way you can understand. But uh, this is moving at an incredibly rapid pace daily. People are looking for new genes, new mutations, new cell cycle activators that can be targetable so that we can slow down the growth of metastatic melanoma. And this is just a, a list of some of those that, that uh, people are studying vehemently. 
So back to bimorafenib, because this is something that you're going to see. Your patient comes back to you, right, for their, their three-month skin check. A very good number of patients have side effects that are kind of debilitating. Uh, 40% of the patients require a dose reduction, and some of the systemic manifestations include fatigue, arthralgias, flu-like symptoms, and uh, things that you, you could potentially be aware of. Other side effects. And I, and I talk a lot about bimirafenib in particular because this is kind of the, one of the big kids on the block, although it's quickly being displaced by some of the other guys we're going to talk about. But from our standpoint, there are some very apparent side effects, and you've probably seen these already. Even though this has been around for just a, almost a snapshot in time, right? Seven years goes by like this. Uh, in the skin, patients get squamous cell carcinomas and cratoacanthomas at an alarmingly high rate, 15 to 30%. You've probably seen this. You've probably seen it in some of the other metastatic uh, malignancy treatments, like serafinib causes this uh, in, a, in a major way. Some patients can get new melanomas. We'll talk about why that happens in a second. Or their atypical nevi become more atypical. Photosensitivity, uh, lobular paniculitis, and acneiform eruption or folliculitis. These are things uh, that, that are very commonly seen with bimorafenib. Now, some of those side effects that were mentioned here happen because of a, uh, a paradoxical activation of the other wild-type cells. So cells that don't have a MAP kinase B600E mutation. So you have a, a wild-type B600. Things are normal, let's say, in your, your atypical nevi. But if you block it in your melanoma with this drug, for some reason, those other cells start going crazy, and then you end up with an atypical nevi that turns into melanoma, squamous cell carcinomas that start coming up at an alarmingly high rate, et cetera. So that's kind of how that happens. And, and just to go back to the, uh, the, the cartoon of the MAP kinase pathway, these are the, the targetable sites and the drugs that go with them. I'd mentioned before, bimirafenib and dibrafenib hit RAF right here, and trametinib and cobimetinib hit the MEC portion of that. It's all the same pathway. So there, we just knocked out four drugs. I feel good about that. So other, other targeted therapies. I just mentioned dibrafenib. It's another BRAF inhibitor. It has a response rate that's pretty similar to bemurafenib. I mentioned in, in that last slide, trametinib and cobimetinib. These are MEC inhibitors. And this side effect profile is a little bit different. It has uh, some effect on the circulatory system, hypertension, and a decreased ejection fraction. Uh, I tried to keep these out of the talk, but notice how there's a partial improvement. And this brings us to a, uh, another aspect that takes it to a whole new level. We have the drugs, okay? We thought that was cool enough to have those. But then, as researchers will do, trying every possible permutation and combinations of these, it's been shown that if you use a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor compared to just a single agent, of like dibrafenib or bemurafenib, you get some survival benefit. So if we have a melanoma here. Tell them that you want combination therapy because you have a much better chance of, uh, of having success. There's problems with that, though. You're given a lot of combination therapy. The side effects can, can mount. So combination therapy now, and it depends on your center. Again, this is a, a moving target. Uh, 
BRAF and MET combination therapy, which could include dibrafenib and, and trametinib, or bebirafenib and cobimetinib. And now, please don't let your eyes gloss over because now he's just like talking about all this stuff. This makes sense. The regimens are, are fairly similar uh, to one another. And um, what's been shown is that you can get more efficacy from, from combining them together. So that's kind of the, the, the state of the art at this juncture. Ooh, you told me not to use that. Okay. What's interesting, though, I told you that some of the side effects can mount when you have combination therapy. But what's kind of exciting is in some area in particular, and I apologize, the slide, you can't read this very well, but this kind of highlights um, what I'm talking about here, is that the uh, numbers of squames and cratoacanthomas with uh, combination therapy or bemurafenib and uh, cobimetinib compared to bemurafenib and placebo, you get less uh, SCCs and KAs. But that doesn't mean that the fatigue and the arthralgias and the flu-like symptoms are any better. They're actually worse. So there's, there's a lot going on here and a lot to consider uh, when taking care of these patients. So we talked about the targeted kinase inhibitors, BRAF and MEC. There, four of them. Feel good about that. And now we got these last four, and I'll try and make these somewhat accessible as well. These ones, I think, have even more uh, cool mechanism of actions because they kind of take it to another level. First, there's epilimumab, which is CTLA-4, and we'll talk about that. And then the PD-1 inhibitors, there's two of them, mivalumab and pembrolizumab. People got really excited a few years ago when these guys came on the scene. And then there's TVEC, which is, in the right situation, it's amazing. If it doesn't work, it's very disappointing. Isn't that the case with everything? All right, so ipilimumab, how does this work? Well, you have your, your, your T cells, super complicated little beasts that run around and, and do important things for you, like keeping you from having cancer, keeping you from having disease. Sometimes they go awry and cause you to have lupus. Well, things like uh, CTLA-4 kind of puts the brakes on those T cells so that they don't get too excited and cause you to have autoimmune diseases. When you give something like ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 uh, antibody, it gets in here and blocks that. So now it kind of takes the brakes off of those T cells that could go and kill cancer, like melanoma, and it enhances the immune response. So you're basically taking the brakes off. You're letting out the watchdog to go, go take care of the bad guy. So it inhibits CTLA-4, um, which, as I said, is, is a negative regulator of, uh, of T cell activation. It comes with four IV doses given three weeks apart. And the, the effect that one can see, and sometimes it can be dramatic. People, you you've possibly have seen the pictures in journals because people get very excited about them. One can have metastatic melanoma nodules all over their body. You give them a few shots of this, and then they just kind of magically dissolve. Phenomenal if you're the, uh, the hemonc doc taking care of that patient. About 10 to 15% of patients are going to respond. Um, and a lot of those have a durable response as of yet. So this is, is an exciting drug. Again, like all of these, it comes with a little bit of a price. There are some side effects. Um, a general activation of the immune system causes things that people don't like, like diarrhea. Hippophysitis, which can really do bad things to your endocrine system if you inflame your anterior pituitary. Remember the uh, 
most important uh, gland in the body. And then there's other skin manifestations that one can see, like a rubelliform eruption, itchiness, as if that's not already a big enough problem for us, and, and vitiligo can be seen in IPI therapy. When patients get IPI or uh, the other uh, checkpoint inhibitors, one thing that, that can happen and confuse the whole situation is this phenomenon of pseudoprogression. And what that is, let's say you take your, your, your melanoma, your metastatic melanomas, and you give somebody pembrolizumab or ipilimumab. Let's focus on IPI for now. You've taken the brakes off of those lymphocytes. They go crazy. They're looking for badness now. Oh, we found a melanoma. And they go there, and they inflame the heck out of the melanoma. So if in a week or two of getting ipilimumab, you do some imaging on the patient, you looked last week, and the melanoma was like this. You gave him ipilimumab, and then it was like that. Whoa, what happened? This thing just grew. Well, it didn't grow. If you biopsy it and look at it, it's just loaded up with, with lymphocytes, and that means that it's actually working. So something that you know, the, the hemonc, the surgical oncologist docs, need to keep in mind when, when using these medications. But then after some time, after this pseudoprogression resolves, then you get the desired effect the Metz melanoma starts to go away. So other cool molecule works something like the CTLA-4 inhibitor. So here's where ipilimumab works. Even more exciting are the, the PD-1 inhibitors, nivolumab, uh, the program cell death 1 antibodies. They kind of do the same thing as the CTLA-4. They take the brakes off the T cell unleash the beast so that it can go and uh, kill melanoma. So nivolumab and pembrolizumab, they also get IV dosing as of yet. You know, these are new drugs, so the regimen is still being worked out. As of yet, it's kind of indefinite. If somebody has metastatic melanoma and they're responding to nebo and pembro, just keep giving it until, I don't know, we haven't seen it long enough. I guess people just either die or they stay alive and you just keep on giving it to them. It gives a pretty rapid response. There's um, some side effects, but sometimes they can be debilitating, and about 10% of patients that were in the clinical trials had to say, I can't take it anymore, this drug is killing me. Using drugs together, and I talked about this a, a bit ago, a, a bit ago. If you combine them, so nivolumab and ipilimumab, and remember, I told you there were eight things, so try this one with that one. I mean, that, that's about all you need to know because truth be told, there's way too much to, to, keep in, uh, to keep in mind as to which combinations work better. And again, that's way above the level of what I need to know and hopefully what you need to know as well. Unless you're a, a, a hemonc PA, then you better know that really well because someone will ask you. So, just to give you a little bit of the data on that. So nivolumab alone, progression-free survival of 6.9 months. Well, that's better than what we had talked about before. You know, it's less than three months uh, without it. Uh, nivolumab plus ipilimumab. Look at that little bit of improvement. By adding ipi onto nivolumab, progression-free survival comes out to almost a year. Cool stuff. Still not fantastic. It's not a home run, but... Uh, it's better than we had years ago. Um, ipilimumab uh, alone, 2.9 months. Remember, these have to be given in, in the right situations. Again, 
pay no attention to the ugly graph on the side. Uh, Progression-free survival according to the PDL1 tumor status. So 14 months patients in the in the Nebo group, 14 months in Nebo plus ipilimumab, but if you're just given Ipi, 3.9 months. So this is starting to show that the pembrolizumab is uh, is superior and, and with or without combination. Uh, and among patients with a negative PDL1 tumor status, so Again, remember, you're just kind of picking and choosing, and this is what I meant by the hemonc docs are starting to get a little desperate. Try this, try that, enroll with this. Check the, the, whether they have a mutation at the, uh, the checkpoint or not, or if they have uh, uh, RAF uh, mutations. So patients with a negative uh, PDL1 tumor status, the median progression-free survival is five months with NEVO, uh, 11.2 months in the NEVO and IPI group, so again, a testament to combo working better, or 2.8 months in just the ipilimumab group. We're getting to the end, folks. Again, we talked about uh, increased efficacy comes uh, at a cost. You get more side effects when you put them together. So grade three, four adverse events, the majority of patients um, are going to have those compared to whether you had Nebo alone or Ipi alone. So again, the point there, is that when you combine them, it's almost synergistic how well their tumor is going to respond. That's a good thing, but it's kind of a synergistic uh, lack of improvement in, in their side effects. In clinical trials, 43% of patients had to stop. 27% uh, couldn't even get the four full cycles. And uh, because you're dealing with serious disease, 3% of the patients uh, passed on. So looking at IPI monotherapy, uh, th this was you know, one of the first um, studies that showed that you get a pretty good response. So higher recurrence-free survival and overall survival uh, by using these medications. Again, just more combinations of the same thing. I think we, we hit the main points. I'm going to go on to, to TVEC here, the last one, because this is kind of exciting. So TVEC is a modified uh, oncolytic virus that's modified uh, the herpes virus. And what it has is a deletion of one portion, not important uh, the, to know, but uh, ICP 34.5 and a deletion of ICP 47. And then you insert the uh, GMCF gene, so it's a, it's a promote, behind a CMB promoter, to turn on, uh, it, it's enhancing the anti-tumor uh, response by recruiting and stimulating other dendritic cells to go and attack melanoma. This is way too complicated to think about here. But the proposed mechanism of action, because it's still sort of being, being uh, sorted out, is it, uh, it selectively, selectively replicates in the tumor cells and then lyses them. This is just the, uh, the, the paper that shows that in, in the patients in the clinical trial that used this medication, there was a, uh, a response rate that, that was still ongoing. So things that are coming on the horizon, more combination therapies. I mentioned this. If you thought that was complicated, it's going to get more complicated. Um, different ways to treat and, and to use them either simultaneously or use one. If it fails, then use another one. 
All these things are being worked out by the, by the uh, Hemonc docs. This is something that uh, I pulled from just a couple of days ago. This is about combining uh, TVEC and ipilimumab. Those patients do better than ipilimumab alone. So again, any possible combination of these medications, these are what the Hemonc docs are, are trying right now. Uh, another one, this was from three days ago as well. This was the headline in, in the Dermatology Daily newsletter that if you combine radiation uh, with the checkpoint inhibitors, so nivolumab and pembrolizumab in brain mets, that, that you're going to do, do better. So I feel like at least two, three times a week, you're getting some new information about combining medication with radiation or other different combinations of medication, giving you slightly improved and I guess this is how progress is made in this uh, very complicated world. Without going into too much detail, and um, I mentioned that uh, I actually speak, I think that's how I met Eileen, is I, I speak for Castle Biosciences. So you can take this with a grain of salt. A lot of people already here had mentioned that they use the genomic expression profile test, which is a prognostic, uh, a prognostic test that tells you about the biological behavior of the melanoma. It doesn't help you with the diagnosis. The diagnosis is the diagnosis. Once you have a diagnosis of melanoma, then you could apply this test that's an assay that looks at 31 genes and tells you if you're, much like in breast cancer, there are, are tests available like this. If you get a class two uh, result from the uh, genomic expression profile test, it means you're likely to do poorly. If you get a, and I'm kind of glossing it over and just giving you the over the, the highlights of this. If you get a class one that has a very high negative predictive value, about 97% uh, for disease-free survival and overall survival and melanoma-specific survival. And just to show you very quickly what the data looks like, it was just published um, on this specific test, the genomic expression profile test. If you look at the what this is, JEP class, which is called a genomic expression profile class. So for class two, remember I said the melanomas that are likely to do uh, less well, uh, recurrence-free survival has a better predictability or better sensitivity than sentinel lymph node status. So positive sentinel lymph node, 66%, or versus sensitivity of 70% to tell you how patients are going to do. Uh, distant METS-free survival, Again, better sensitivity and specificity than a sentinel lymph node, and even more strikingly, in melanoma-specific survival, uh, higher spe uh, sensitivity and specificity in, in terms of uh, uh, survival. If you combine a sentinel lymph node with the genomic expression profile test, uh, you get even better predictability of prognosis or how well the patient is going to do. Uh, in time. So the worst possible situation to be in for recurrence-free survival is if you have a class 2 tumor, so this is the most biologically aggressive type of tumor, and a positive sentinel lymph node, the recurrence-free survival is 37%, distant METS-free survival is 44%, uh, and 63%. All of this to say that adding on the genomic expression profile test to a sentinel lymph node or sometimes to help you decide if you need a sentinel lymph node at all. And again, I'm not trying to make this into a talk about the genomic expression profile test. It can be useful in, um, in, in uh, helping you to, to manage the patient. Now, I think we are close to the end. Why is it stuck?
can go. Nobody wants to hear any more about this. We only have four minutes. Brian, help me. I'm trying to make it go forward, folks. Ah, oh, there it is. Hey, what happened to my questions? We needed to study again. Ah, oh, there they are. Good. All right. This is to see if people were paying attention. What's the median survival of metastatic melanoma? Less than a year, less than five years, five to ten years, or greater than ten years? Good job, people. Paid attention. Remember, the people were all over the map on this one. Next question. This is just to show how we did. What's the five-year survival rate of metastatic melanoma? Less than 1%, less than 5%, 5 to 10%, or 15 to 20%. Good job. All right. Remember, we were all over the map on that one, too. It was in the 20, 20, 20 kind of thing. All right. Yeah, 22% got the right answer last time. A V600E mutation could successfully be treated with Ipi, Bemurafenib, Nivolumab, or TVEC. Good job. Almost everybody got that one right. And subject to any other questions, I believe that is the end of this presentation on advanced and metastatic melanoma. What is the best diagnostic modality for large pigmented lesions on the head and neck area? I think that uh, that's, that's a tough question because we need to be a little clear. Large is kind of a vague term. Um, this might be the particular situation where scouting biopsies wouldn't be the worst idea in the world if you had a big, looks like lenigal maligna versus, you know, the ones I'm talking about, uh, solar lenigo, huge solar lenigo, early seborrheic keratosis. Instead of just taking the whole darn thing off, maybe take the, the four little scouting biopsies of the worst areas. That's probably the most complicated one. And then, you know, if you have one that you can sample the whole thing, by all means, sample the whole thing. So that, that's my answer to that. Uh, in regards to castle diagnostics, again, it's not a diagnostic test. It's a prognostic test. Should we be sending all melanomas? No, absolutely not. And much to the chagrin of the castle company, and they would probably be mad if they heard me say that, definitely not all melanomas. Certainly not melanoma in situ, for starters, no. It's for invasive melanoma. Is there a hard and fast cutoff for invasive melanomas? In, in, in my opinion, other factors have to go into it. If it's a teeny tiny little melanoma and there's not much left after you took the whole thing off, the test is probably going to fail anyway because there has to be an amount of melanoma left that they can run the test on. So these 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4 invasive melanomas, I, don't bother. Um, I, I could go on and on talking about that, but just to answer that question, should we be sending all melanomas? No. Um, 
What about previous melanomas? If it's within the last couple of years and you think it's going to make a difference in terms of how you do surveillance on the patients, I would definitely consider it. Should we send those? And if so, what's the timeline? Uh, I think I sort of said that. Maybe two or three years max. They'll test things up to the, within the last five years. But, but one thing, and I don't want to turn this into a, into a castle talk, or with regard to uh, recurrent melanoma and metastatic melanoma, in general, the median time for that is about a year and a half, two years, that the patient's going to get metastatic melanoma from the time of their original diagnosis. So it gets to be, to be sure, far less useful the further you go out from the original diagnosis. Castle class lab high risk with negative sentinel lymph node biopsy. This is what I love to talk about. Again, I don't want to make this into a castle talk. They're not paying me to do this. But um, Are they eligible to be upstaged in the minds of the oncologist or insurance? Yes. It depends where you are. This is a moving target. It's, it's all over the map. Boston, good luck trying to get insurance to, to give you increased surveillance. But I'll give you a, a really cool example of a 34-year-old woman in Topeka, Kansas, who um, had a 0.8 melanoma, so pretty respectable, got a sentinel lymph node. It was negative, and a class 2 uh, so this class 2B high-risk lesion. So what do you do with that? Some people would have never ordered the, the uh, class, uh, the, the genomic expression profile test in the first place, right? So again, you have a, uh, what's considered a pretty aggressive melanoma, but with a negative sentinel lymph node, but a class 2. Well, fortunately for her, the hemonc doctor who, who is in, uh, in Topeka, Kansas, actually takes uh, some stock in, not stock from a financial standpoint, but believes in the, uh, the genomic expression profile test and started following her very closely. Did an initial imaging because he took that class too seriously and then did imaging. So the, the uh, chest, abdomen, pelvis was negative initially and then six months later found her to have a tiny little nodule in her lungs, biopsied it, it was melanoma radiated it, she's doing beautifully. What would have happened if she would have not had that test? She would have had a negative sentinel lymph node, thought she was doing fine, and would have probably been riddled with METs sometime down the road. Is TVEC a CRISPR gene product? Nope. Some poindexters in the lab that put it together. Just kidding. Next question. Which melanoma results should be sent for BRAF testing? Any patient that has metastatic melanoma uh, should be tested for BRAF, uh, as well as the other checkpoint inhibitors, because you want to see if you have targetable melanoma that you can treat with some of the drugs that, that I just spoke about. Have there been any cures with any of these medications for metastatic melanoma? It, that's hard to define as cure. This is very new stuff. Uh, there have definitely been folks that radiographically have shown to completely clear their melanoma, and that's what makes it so exciting, because 10 years ago, that never, ever, ever happened. Well, don't say never. There are miracles. Uh, but now there are these drugs that cure melanoma. It's rare. Most patients are going to, as I mentioned, are going to have a, uh, 
uh, a recurrence at some point or progression. Can you clarify when to get a sentinel lymph node <laughs> briefly? No. <laughs> Whoever asked that question, I am more than happy to sit down and talk to you as long as you want, but there's no way I can do that briefly right now. That was that whole MSLT1, MSLT2, and the 1,347 patients. Can't do that briefly. It's impossible. So I'm sorry. I'll be happy to talk to you later. Any other questions? This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.